Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use, and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos, and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk. On this second edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, we go exploring in the wilds of Britain with a bald explorer. We have a look at three great walking festivals taking place in April and... It took me about a month to convince my husband it was the right thing to do. He was very reasonable. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, his wife was asking him to go off with a bunch of strangers across the Middle East on a bike, then wanted to climb Everest. Pauline Sanderson tells us about her epic adventure. Hello, I'm Andrew White and welcome to the second Walks Around Britain podcast. Now, this podcast is released on the 1st of April, but I can assure you that there is no fooling around on this edition because we've really got to move quickly to fit everything in. And talking about fitting things in, thank you to the many listeners who got in touch to say that the contact details at the end of the first podcast got cut off. This is because we went over the 30-minute limit we have with the nice people at Audioboo. I can only apologise for that and it won't happen again. We'd love for you to get involved in our podcast. You can email us, tweet us, or write us a message on Facebook, or you can record a message on your smartphone and email it to us, or even record a voice message from your computer by visiting our blog. I'll definitely give you the contact details at the end of this programme. Well, we've got a bit of an explorer theme on this edition of the podcast. Later, Pauline Sanderson will be telling us about the world's longest climb and her trek across several countries. But first, a man whose feet are firmly placed in this country, Britain. His name is Richard Vobes, and he produces a programme called The Bald Explorer. And Richard joins me now. Richard, can you tell us more about The Bald Explorer? Well, I can. The Bald Explorer is a series of videos, and it's really me. I am The Bald Explorer because I am bald and I like exploring things, mainly through history and travel, and particularly Britain. The idea is that uh, I go around the place with my video camera, investigate, explore and try and tell the story of some of the myths and legends that have taken place in various parts of England. It's a big challenge, but uh, hopefully I'm up to it. Well, we've got a clip, so let's have a listen. Now, remember that William de Warren character? You know, the one that built the castle? Well, I'm off to visit his priory, the Priory of St Pancras. No, not the train station in London, but the religious house of the Cluniac monks. Or at least their ruins. There doesn't seem as much of the vast and splendid buildings that there once was. And I think we can put that down to Henry VIII and his henchman Cromwell. Thomas, not Oliver. Yes, it was Thomas Cromwell that dreamt up the dissolution of the monasteries scheme as a way for Henry VIII to make a small fortune selling off the religious buildings to the local gentry. William de Warren founded the priory towards the end of the 11th century and the monks were famed for their splendid buildings, which now are mostly gone. But in its day, St Pancras was absolutely stunning. 
the main church was bigger than Chichester Cathedral. And for those of you who don't know, it's quite big. And then there were shed loads of other ancillary buildings, such as chapels, infirmaries, dormitories, oh yeah, and toilets. Yes, it transpires that the silent order of Cluniac monks were very big on lavatories. Now, I'm really intrigued to find out about those toilets, and I suppose that's the good thing about watching programmes like this, is that you find out loads that you didn't know. Well, funny enough, <laughs> at doing these things, you find out things that you didn't intend, and it's quite interesting because you set off with one goal in mind. Um, the, the most recent one is on the Romney Marshes and Smugglers. Right. And as you start to research it and go to the area, and I always go to the area before I start filming because you, you need to do a recce. You need to, from filming point of view, see what the light is like, where the sun rises and sets so that you, you know best times of day to get best views and things. But inevitably, you suddenly see things that you hadn't noticed before. It might be a, a building or a church or a monument or something that you hadn't read about. And then you do a bit of research on that, and that may take you in a completely different direction. So even as a program maker, it's uh, fascinating to stumble across stuff that you didn't even know. And we tend these days to know more about other countries than the one we're living in. Well, I certainly think that in recent years, we've had loads of programmes which have taken us around the world in wonderful detail and given us all this information, as you say. And very much our own country is forgotten. And yet there's such a wealth of places to go and see and lots of history. I mean, we're so steeped in history that people like the Americans and the Australians who have, well, only a couple of hundred years of history, you know, they're so envious of us. And I think that there is a big interest and we just take it for granted. We really do. And the most recent one, which I've just completed, has been down on the south coast of Sussex and Kent, particularly around the Romney Marshes, Dungeness, that sort of, which is, a, funny enough, it's peculiarly named because it is no longer a marsh and it hasn't been a marsh most of its time that it's been occupied it was marsh land but it was drained when the romans were around and then since then it's not really been marsh land it's just been very fertile land because it was under seas so this is really about the smugglers uh, of that particular period is what i'm investigating and also showing off the landscape but after that, my next project goes from the Romney Marshes to the Welsh Marches, which is a completely different thing. And yet there are very many similarities between the two. So how long is each programme and how long does it take to make them? They take to make, so far, they've taken about three months to put together. And that's because on each particular one, I've had interruptions with work, which obviously one has to do and pay the bills because this doesn't actually at this moment in time earn me any cash. So ordinarily, if I was to sort of just do it around ordinary work and what have you, I would imagine it would take a month. It does take a bit of time to do the research. That's the other thing. And, and getting down on site and having a recce. And yes. of course, it is quite expensive because if it's not in your local area, you've got to then work out where you're going to stay cost of bed and breakfast is transport because petrol is so ruddy expensive Indeed, um, and um and all those sort of logistics and then if you're you know using people to help you as in film because i present 
in these. Some of it I've done myself where it's just been me and the camera and I set it up and then you feel a bit of a, a tit talking to an unmanned camera. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a lot easier when you're doing a walk in the middle of nowhere to talk to a camera which is unmanned. Yes, much, much easier. <laughs> Are you looking to change the format a little, though? Well, what I'm thinking of doing is putting together a much smaller, more regular format. Like, um, I'm not quite sure whether it would be fortnightly or monthly, which would be very much more as a presented show from the cabin, like a magazine television programme would link to other reports, which may be by outside people like yourself. Um, Yes or myself out and about, so that you can present a wider scope of things and and look for contributions from people. And then whilst that's going on, which is easier to manage and easier to produce, of course, one can still be working on the other longer projects, but uh, without so much pressure, I think. So a bit like the one show then? Exactly. I shall be just like the ginger guy. What's his name? (laughs) (laughs) Who does it? I forgot his name. Chris Evans, there we go. That's the one. I should, I'll have to put a wig on now. <laughs> and act very badly in your past. Exactly. <laughs> no problem there. <laughs> Maybe that's for another podcast, I think. Yes. Maybe so. <laughs> so. So tell us about the podcast that you do. Yes. Well, I have for the last seven years run a podcast called The Vogue Show which was a daily format show, which I suppose over the years it's done lots of different things from walking podcasts, which we do where um, I'm out and about, usually with somebody. Recently, in the last sort of year or so, I've been out with a friend of mine called Harriet and we go walking over the Shropshire Hills or wherever. And uh, it's quite relaxed sort of thing. It's not terribly informative. It's it's more our response to where we are and, and the ease of the walk and, and various other things. In the past, I've gone with uh, some other friends of mine and we try and do interesting walks. These walks are more local in Sussex and try and maybe follow a Roman road or exploring abbeys or Anything that has a sort of historical bent, really, that's my interest, really. Something that has some sort of sense of history, tradition, legend, uh, that sort of thing. So is this where the Bald Explorer came from? Really and truly, you could say that I've been doing the Bald Explorer all these years, but under a different name. Yes. I've got on the Bald Explorer website now, and there's some of those earlier interviews with people who've taken us around, like Hastings Caves, the old smugglers' caves, and um, Cowdery House, you know, those sort of places, and uh, all that sort of stuff. I mean, brilliant, brilliant fun, because I just love that whole genre, really, of trying to produce something with a sort of history or travel bent to it. So how can we watch these excellent videos? Right, well, there's baldexplorer.com, which is bald as in no hair. And if we want to follow you on Twitter... Oh, well, uh, at Vobes or at Bald Explorer. That's great. Thanks very much, Richard. Pleasure. Thank you for having me on your wonderful podcast. Now, April is when the walking festival season really takes off, and we've got three to whet your appetite with. Let's start in Scotland with the Newton Stewart Walking Festival, and Ken McCubbin joins me. Ken, Tell us about the festival. Newton Stewart Walking Festival came about as a result of a number of local people wanting to promote the area for walking. Ten years ago we had our first and it was a very small venture with a couple of walks and we now offer seven days of walking and the walking is a mixture of upland coastal walks. So whereabouts in Scotland is the festival based? 
the festival is based in Newton Stewart, and Newton Stewart is 50 miles west of Dumfries and 25 miles east of Stranraer. It's on the main A75 Euro route, so access is very, very straightforward from England and certainly from other parts of Scotland. It's part of the southern uplands, and the name, the generic name of all the hills in our area is the Galloway Hills. So what type of variety of walks are available over the festival? The variety of walks, they range from what we describe as medium walks, and a medium walk would be something that would be up to perhaps seven or eight kilometres in length, uh, would have well-defined paths, forest roads, not a huge amount of climb, maybe an ascent of perhaps 200 metres. Occasionally we'll go to a medium plus, which might involve slightly wilder areas. We then go into the strenuous walks, tend to be somewhere between 10 and 12 kilometres, and between 750 and 1,000 metres of ascent. And when we go into the top bracket, we're looking at walks that are very challenging and are described for people who are experienced hill walkers, a high level of fitness, and these can range between 18 and 20 kilometres, and they are sent to somewhere between 1,200 and 2,000 metres. A wide variety of quite challenging walks are on offer as well. In the hills, these are very challenging, but we are also surrounded by the, the Solway Coast, and we have some of the most wonderful walks around our coastal areas, and each year we offer at least four of our 30 walks being in the coastal area. This year we are using the far west of Galloway and we're using a couple of new walks in that area. And further towards the Dumfries area and the Solway Coast, we've got two walks in, in that area. One is new for us and one is at the request of previous walkers who would like to, to do it again. So if people want to join you at the festival, how can we get in touch? The walking festival dates for 2012, the 11th to the 17th of May. We start on a Friday and we finish on a Thursday. We run through for seven days. Our website address is newtonstuartwalkfest.co.uk. That's lovely. Thanks very much for joining us, Ken. Not at all. Delighted. And I hope this will result in one or two people coming to our part of the world. Heading down to the south of England now, and Andy Pedrick is here to talk about the Swanage and Purbeck Walking Festival. Andy, tell us all about the festival. It's in its third year now. We started over five days and we expanded it last year. And this year we've gone to nine days with over 50 walks ranging from uh, flat walks, for example, the history of Swanage, up to uh, 16 mile treks across the Perbex and um, a lot in between, uh, viewing obviously a wide range of flora, fauna, uh, history, etc. along the way. So what's the landscape like? The landscape's a dramatic section of the Jurassic Coast. Uh, the Old Harry Rocks, where a couple of the walks go, is the eastern end of the Jurassic Coast. There are some climbs along the way which uh, are often unexpected, but uh, there's some lovely inner ridgeways as well, all the way through to Lower and uh, Durdalore, which are two icons of the uh, of the Jurassic Coast and of the Isle of Purbeck. And there's some lovely views over Inner Dorset as well. Obviously, it's not an island as such, although it's called the Isle of Purbeck. It's because of difficulty of access through the low-level areas uh, when entering Swanage and the Isle of Purbeck in the Middle Ages. It's very wet, so they call it the Isle of Purbeck. What's the main aim of the festival? Well, really, is to come and really see what is here with Corf Castle, etc. A lot of people drive past the area to go to Devon and Cornwall, but with the Olympics, obviously, down in Weymouth and Portland, this is a great area to explore with fantastic views, fantastic history, literature such as Thomas Hardy to be discovered as well. So it's a wide range of activities to be done, really. When is the festival running this year? Saturday the 28th of April. 
through to Sunday the 6th of May. And how can we get some more information? Uh, there's a website, uh, warpswanage.com, and if people want to look at uh, accommodation, where to go um, while they're there, they can go to visitswanage.com. Thanks very much, Andy. Pleasure. And the week before the Swanage and Purbeck Walking Festival is the Boscastle Walking Week. And Denise Tillinghast from the Valencia Bed and Breakfast in the Village joins me now. Hello again, Denise. Hi, Andrew. Tell us about Boscastle. Uh, Boscastle is a really picturesque harbour on the north coast of Cornwall. And we're really special because we sit on a very dramatic section of the southwest coast path. You'll all recall that we had a devastating flood in 2004. So after that, we got together as businesses to see how we could showcase this really beautiful area. Uh, It's always been a very intimate event uh, and we plan it for dozens of people rather than hundreds of people. So much so that several walkers have already rebooked their accommodation from last year for this year's event. One of the aspects I enjoy is when many of us gather together to chat in the evenings because every year we try and negotiate a special pub and restaurant meal deal for each night and then we have the posh festival dinner at the end and that's so popular that many people book before they even choose their walks. What type of different walks are on offer? Well, each day in the programme, we've got two to three glorious walks of various lengths and, and, and levels of difficulty. And at least one of those walks actually starts in Boscastle. We take you through a diverse range of scenery over the week along coastal cliffs and beaches, through wooded valleys and waterfalls, and even gently climbing up ancient tours on the nearby moorland. Some of the walks have got themes such as the Crackington Geology or the Thomas Hardy walks. When is this year's festival? Well, it's been moved from October, which was quite quite a nice time to have it, but it was so busy after our Food and Arts Festival that we decided to put it in the spring, and spring is superb in, in Boscastle. The wildflowers and the birds are all here. So this year it's from the 23rd to the 27th of April. So that's St George's Day to start us off. And how can we find out more details? Well, there are two ways. Uh, you can ring the National Trust Visitor Centre on 01840 or you can go onto the website and look at uh, bosscastlefestival.co.uk and you'll also find all the information about the, the other festival on there as well. That's super. Many thanks, Denise. OK, hope it won't be too long before we see you again. And you can see the walk I did with Denise and two Johns around Boscastle and the Valencia Valley on our website, walksaroundbritain.co.uk. It's this month's featured walk. <laughs> Now, what's the world's highest mountain? Easy. Everest, of course, at 29,000 feet above sea level. So it goes without saying that climbing Everest is the world's longest climb, right? Wrong. How about starting from nearly 1,400 feet below sea level and then climbing Everest? Then, when you know that to get from the lowest point on Earth at the Dead Sea to the foot of Mount Everest is a 5,000-mile bike ride, you begin to get more of an appreciation of the epic adventure Pauline Sanderson and her teammates undertook in 2005. And Pauline is one of the speakers at next month's Keswick Mountain Festival, and I'm delighted to say that she's joining me now from an internet cafe in Avonmore via Skype. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Now, even before we get into the world's longest climb, your career path isn't one you're likely to find from a school careers service, is it? Well, I think the career changes that I've had haven't always been thought through. They've often been spontaneous. But the first one wasn't. The first one wasn't. I mean, I was a barrister in London for six years and due to certain stimulus such as going on a team building week with them and travelling for a year, I decided I actually wanted to become an outdoor instructor. As you do. And um, as you do, as you do. Well, you know, you're going on these team building things and they're having so much fun outside. I thought, I want to do it. Mm-hmm. And 
and that was calculated I must admit that was very calculated and of course then it opened the whole outdoor industry to me until you get into an industry you don't know how many options there are in there so when I'd done a year I realized actually kids would probably die in my hands because I'm <laughs> I'm I'm not I don't know I'm just wasn't made for that sort of thing loved it I think kids have so much benefit from being the outdoors but I'd have been better as being some form of manager in it. So I thought, I'll try other things, and I'll, I'll go for being a leader of adults out in Nepal. Okay. So I thought I'd spend a couple of months out there getting to know the territory on my own, and then come back and sell myself as a trip leader. I spent a few months out there, did a mountain, did some rivers, and fell in with a, a group called Equator Expeditions, who ran a rafting company. And after a few rum and cokes, I was telling them some home truths about their sales and stuff. And so they said, well, well, if you're so good at this, why don't you come out and do it? So I went, OK, I will. <laughs> and eight weeks later, I'd been back to the UK, packed a few things and come back out working for them as their sales girl for the first season and then spent four years there. That was a huge adventure in itself. I learned so much from being out there and had so many adventures and met wonderful people and and then I was married, I got married to Phil, my hero, and he was doing his qualifications in the UK. So we were having a bit of a part-time marriage with me being out there and him coming back here. So then we came back to the Lake District because we thought that's a wonderful place to live if you love the outdoors. And it was. And Phil got a job as a technical man and I got a job in a team building company called Catalyst. And that was brilliant. For five years, I went around selling and doing team development programs. So that was great. And then Phil got a job up at Glenmore Lodge, which was his dream job. And I followed. And just by default, got their marketing manager job probably because nobody else wanted this at the time so that was great and I had five stunning years as the marketing manager at Glenmore Lodge so that's a it all kind of happened by default rather than natural choice apart from the first one we see hmm. so how did you get the opportunity to join this extraordinary adventure when I was marketing at the Glenmore Lodge, I obviously got loads of flyers coming through to put on our notice board and stuff. And one of them said, wanted somebody to do six-month expedition, the longest climb on Earth, going from the lowest point on Earth to the highest point on Earth, cycling 5,000 miles and summiting on Everest. And, well, you know, there are certain times in your life when opportunities come along and it would be wrong to say no. Why shouldn't I do it? I can bike. I've done some mountaineering, you know. I've done quite a lot of mountaineering, um, less biking, actually. So I, I, as soon as I saw this flyer, I put one up on the notice board and the contact details were for Dom Faulkner. So I called him straight away and went, blah, 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 blah. and um, I expected some form of long wielded interview and challenge and all that. Yes, of course, because you'd need to have a, a medical and psychological yeah. profiling. And, and Yeah, but no, he said, yeah, you sound great. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> At this point, I realised he was desperate because... Um, He'd been prepping for two years to do this, and then it's just, this was now only three months before leaving. And So you joined just three months before leaving? I actually joined two months before. It took me a month to convince my husband it was the right thing to do. <laughs> but, uh, but Dom explained that he'd, he'd had his team of five cyclists and two support, but two of the team had dropped out due to family stroke work commitments. So he really did want as many people as possible attempting this big journey because everybody was saying it was against the odds anyway. So if he only started with three cyclists, the likelihood of getting one of them there was was dropping. So um, I came on board and it took me about a month to convince my husband it was the right thing to do. He was very reasonable. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, his wife was asking him to go off with a bunch of strangers across the Middle East on a bike, then wanted to climb Everest. And he had no inclination to do the biking. 
and he knew that the caliber of climbers that I was going with wasn't really where he wanted it to be for Everest so he wonderfully came and joined us on Everest so I took six months unpaid leave and he took three months and he joined us in Kathmandu along with other climbers and we made a bigger team to do the climb but for the biking it was just five of us and two support team so which was just the most amazing journey ever I think every day we woke up and I think we were laughing within the first 10 minutes and <laughs> I met most of them at Heathrow Airport Good grief. I met Dom the expedition leader and Sarah for one evening that we met after I said yes they flew up here very kindly met us for dinner and flew back down the next morning just to make sure I was real and um, wasn't a freak and and they, they that was it that was pretty well it so I said yes in October and we left in December I was the first person in the team to actually complete the world's longest climb and I did it with my husband which which just made the whole trip perfect for me perfect. So how does it feel to know that nobody can get any bigger than that? <laughs> there really isn't anything else. Well it has been yeah it has been suggested that someone's going to scuba dive to the bottom of the dead sea. Yes, yes. So tell us about your book. Ah the book the book um my journey as I think I've probably demonstrated was such a positive journey from so many aspects, culturally, physically, team-wise, that I thought it was too good a journey not to share. And and the only way to share it, I think, in a way that was so personal was to write the book. And um, when I came back, I knew I was going to do it. And I did it. I, I, I resigned from my job, sat down in my camper van for three weeks by Lochmorlick and wrote 90% of it. The first 10% I wrote of it a couple of years before that. The book has, has had great reviews, not because I think it's um, going to get a, a Booker Award for, for literary prowess, but it's it's from the heart. It's I like to think it's it wasn't intended to be inspirational, It was, in, but it seems to have come across like that, which is nice. But um, the first quarter of my book is, is how a girl from the Midlands with no background in the outdoors at all ended up doing the world's longest climb. And because I actually found that when you know where I come from and you know how I got to where I did, you know why I did it. And and I think the, probably the biggest thing that people have picked up on that I'm, I'm never scared of failure. I find failure, it's, it's, it's a consequence. I'm more scared of not trying something that I want to do than failing at it. I'm not the best climber in the world and I'm not the best biker, but I wanted to do this trip. And if I only got to, to Syria, I'd have been happy because I'd have tried it. By the time you actually get to Jordan with me and the team, you understand why I felt so passionately I had to try it. The pictures in it are brilliant. The whole team gave me all their pictures. It's a bit of a coffee table book as well as the biking story. You get to I give statistics at the beginning of each country, so hopefully it's quite informative like that. But it's the journey. You share the journey the whole way. Somebody did say, though, um, it's so fast and so full that it's quite exhausting to read. <laughs> so <laughs> hold on to your armchair. You mentioned that you lived in the Lake District for a time. And the lakes are so important, aren't they, to the whole exploring ethos of this country? Absolutely. I mean, the history from the Lake District, with all the great people that come from it, both the rock climbing, mountaineering, it is, it is the, the ground where we all, we all started. I mean, the Lake District was a huge part for me. I got into the outdoors really late in my life, but the Lake District was somewhere that was inspirational for me. When I was 16 was the first time I'd ever been camping on an equivalent of an outward bound course and I didn't realise this could be hobbies. I was brought up at a petrol station in Leicester. I didn't know that you could go rock climbing as a hobby. I didn't know you could go hiking and all this sort of, as a hobby. I thought it was just a quick fix like you go to Alton Towers. And then I saw this and it was like, 
it was it was beautiful. And then um, I think the Lake District is England's answer to paradise. I love it. All right, there's a bit of rain, but you know who cares? <laughs> and, and Scotland as well. I mean, I live in Scotland in Aviemore now, and again, the weather probably stops it from being overpopulated. But when it's magic, it's just divine. Now you're speaking at the Keswick Mountain Festival in May. What's your part in the program? Well, my part of the festival is uh, talking about, obviously, the world's longest climb. And I'm going to be presenting for about 45 minutes and I'm going to be having lots of video, loads of pictures and me talking an awful lot quite fast about this amazing trip. So there's lots of things about being flooded by sewage, being escorted by AK-47s in Pakistan, about running out of (laughs) oxygen. It's all good. It's all good stuff. Love telling the story. Love telling it. So... Hopefully the audience will enjoy hearing it as much as I enjoy telling it. (laughs) And there's plenty more celebrating the great outdoors or the rest of the festival too, isn't there? The rest of the festival, well, there's everything there, isn't there? So it's just going to be a mix of different people loving what they do and wanting to share it with everybody in a very visual and oral sort of way. So it'll be a bit of party atmosphere, really. There's lots of activities going on as well. And you can join in competitions and workshops and all sorts. So it'll be great. It'll be a great week. The good thing about these sorts of festivals is that they're all made by people with passion. It is. And that's very important, isn't oh, it? Oh, we've all got the passion. Even the audience has got the passion. So it's, it's a, the right kind of mix, isn't it? Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Pauline, for talking to us. Thank you so much. And hopefully to see you, a lot of people, at Keswick Mountain Festival. The Keswick Mountain Festival is on between the 16th and the 20th of May, and you can find out more information and website links on our blog. That's all we can squeeze into our programme this month, and I promised you at the start all our contact details, so if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether to tell us about a great walk that you know, or absolutely anything about walking and the great outdoors, here's the info. You can email us at podcast at walksroundbutton.co.uk. On Twitter, we are at walksbutton, and we're at facebook.com forward slash walksbutton. You can even record us an audio bill and tweet us the link, or you can send us a voice message via email too. Lots of ways to keep in touch. Our blog has show notes for every edition of the podcast so you can look at photographs, short videos and find links to relevant sites on the topics in every edition there. And to get to our blog, simply click through from our homepage at walksaroundbutton.co.uk. If you'd like to make sure that you get the next edition of this podcast, click on subscribe if you're using iTunes, click on follow us if you're on Audioboo or even add your email address to our blog. Until next month when we talk to, amongst others, Tristan Gooley, thanks for listening. And happy walking.